Hello, and welcome to Unsheathed with your hosts, Kyle Gold and Cam Hirosaki. We hope that you enjoy the program. Please stick around afterwards. There'll be cake and blowjobs. Hi, and welcome to Unsheathed number 63. I am Chili Kyle Gold. And I am Chili Cam Hirosaki. We're here in our uh, sub 50 degree discreet mountain location bunker. But we're podcasting by candlelight. We are. So it's it's nice and kind of fit into the mood of what we usually write about, at least, if that makes any sense. I, I was going to say, we're podcasting by candlelight because the power's out, but then how would we be recording this? That's true. But we are well, podcasting by candlelight. I, I, I would believe that Kit would be able to come up with a battery pack for the soundboard and we'd be able to run the mics to it and at least record an episode because we wouldn't have anything else to do while the power was off no nothing at all not while you're here not not while i was here (laughs) but we can uh, make a potato clock (laughs) and use it to power the soundboard i'd have to rely on you for that one i never did that myself unless you you mean like you need like sugar water and something carving a potato into the shape of a triangle and putting it in the center of a sundial (laughs) <laughs> it's about the only way I can make a potato clock. There you go. And it doesn't really power anything. Well, here we are at the end of November. It's um, many days into NaNoWriMo for those who are following that project. And uh, we are not, but we got a couple letters from people who are. Mm-hmm. I've been working on my new novel, uh, Out of Position 2. We showed off the title. I think yes. I can say it on the podcast for the second time. The title's going to be Isolation Play. It will be out at Further Confusion, and SofaWolf is doing a hardcover, which you can pre-order from the SofaWolf site. Um, by the time this gets posted, instructions should be up on my live journal. I know SofaWolf is working on the page today, so um, check my live journal, kylegold.livejournal.com. Uh, I'll probably also tweet about it and post it on FA. Good luck, people, in the future. Yes. <laughs> We're all counting on you. Uh, I've also been working on my Bridges bonus story. I think I finished a draft of it today, so we'll see how that um, how it comes out in I like how you say that with the, I think I finished a draft, because I remember what you said earlier, you're like, can I end a story there? I think I can. I, I think I can. Um, the structure's a little bit interesting, and I, I, had, I had a lot of fun with it. It was, uh, uh, all, all I'll say about it right now is that somebody else who used a similar structure was Stephen Bruce, but he did it in a novel, not in a short story. And there probably wasn't fox sex in it. Yeah, probably not. Probably. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't remember all of Stephen Bruce's books. I remember like in the first couple of the Jureg cycle, or what are they called now? The oh, um, the cycle has a name now, and I can't remember it? what it was. Yeah, it was. Anyway. Okay, you guys really all know. Sorry. You guys all know the books: Zoreg, Yendi, Taltos, Phoenix, the Phoenix Guards, uh, yeah. whatever. And, and you've me. been working on something, actually. Yes, I uh, just got finished with the draft of a short story today myself. Um, yay! Very yay us. Yes, yay us. Uh, let's see. Which means now that writing a story is over and trip to Chicago is over and Thanksgiving is over, I can get back uh, to work on Summer Hill. You know, right with a not-at-all busy holiday season we're plunging headfirst into. I really want you to write A Very Summer Hill Christmas. 
I would, but then like people would be reading it out of context, which would oddly kind of. Make I was sense. gonna say that really. I don't know that that would. People are like I don't know what's going on, and I'm like, good, you get it. It's a preview <laughs> of the work. There you go. This is a summary hill preview. I don't know who any of these characters are or what's going on. Yeah, well, good. You're in the right headspace. It was Christmas Eve aboard the Nusquam, and Summerhill was trying to explain the concept of Christmas to a being of pure energy, <laughs> though he didn't really understand it himself and didn't know how he knew it. <laughs> he was pretty sure they didn't have Christmas where he came from, and yet there it was, right in his head, memories of Christmas and what it meant. <laughs> so instead of it's, instead of like Summerhill finding the true meaning of Christmas, it's about Summerhill finding out how he knows the true meaning of Christmas. <laughs> He would know the true meaning of Christmas, but he'd have to work backwards to what Christmas is. Exactly. This this is your sneak preview, guys. This is what you're in store for when I finally finish this damn book. Uh, and we also had announced over the weekend uh, an anthology coming out, I believe, at Anthrocon that we're both going to be in. Uh, yes, Anthrocon. It's put out by Fur Planet. It's called mm-hmm. The Fortune Teller's Poem, and it's edited by Andres Siani, yep. who is a friend of ours. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are in it with such esteemed published authors as Siani and Foosball and, uh, White Yodi's had stories published. White Yodi, uh-huh. um, Tyrion and Z McCorgan yeah. are also, they're all, they, they've all been it. published before. Yeah. I think they all have. I keep forgetting who the last person in the anthology is. Wait, hold on. Me, you. Foos. Foos. Tyrion. Siani. Siani. White Yodi. White Yodi. Zia. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's seven. That's seven. Okay, that's everybody then. So look for that around Anthrocon. We will remind you, of course, as it gets closer. Yep, and uh, also at Anthrocon we have the heat with both of us in it. Uh, that's right, and foosballs in that one as well. Yes, me and Kyle are in heat together. I think we already made that joke. Yeah, I think we did. Yeah. Um. So lots of exciting stuff coming up next year. This is why I haven't been posting very many free stories because I've been writing a lot of stories for publication yeah same here i want to write free stories i always want to especially around this time of year well the bridges one is going to be up soon and that'll be meh that'll be free and also i was just thinking today how i'm this novel that i'm writing i don't think it has any sex in it so i'm going to be inspired to write a bunch of short porny things that i'm just going to post up online for free so hopefully over the next few months you guys will see some more free stories from me the story I finished writing today, I think in about eight scenes out of ten, there's sex going on. That's awesome. It's, yeah. It's not even, like, super porny, though. I mean, it is, but it isn't. Yeah, I find that lately, unless it's something where, like, the characters are really involved at the... I'm trying to figure out how to say this. I was going to say the characters are really involved in the process of sex, but yeah, you know what I mean. It's sort of if they're like, or if you know, the element of the plot hinges on the fact that somebody's getting fucked so hard and loud that everyone else in the house can hear it. <laughs> That's relevant. Or if someone doesn't know about certain facets of the other person's anatomy. Um, but uh, why is it shooting out stuff like that? <laughs> <laughs> It's a cooling spray. <laughs> um, but, but uh Yeah, I'm finding it harder to kind of to draw out the the erotic scenes. It's I like describing them and I like sort of you know, getting into what happens, but you know, even in isolation play, 
I think I I drew out a bunch of scenes, but it was sort of where you know other stuff's going on. Other right, not like in the same room, but it's other stuff going on in the characters' heads. Like you know, at least trying not to bang Dev's cast. For example, for for as a hypothetical example, sorry, we didn't tell them about that part. <laughs> or did we? Or Dev's trying not to hurt the baby. <laughs> I don't know if I should thrust that hard way <laughs> this late in the pregnancy. It's it's a vampire baby. It's fine. Thank you, Kit. Coming later this summer, isolation play to Lovejoy Weasel edit. Uh, It'll be like the Richard Donner my, version of Superman 2. I'm going to bite my tongue on that one. Um, <laughs> hey, guys. I edited your book. <laughs> hey guys, okay, I fixed your horrible. story. Um, but I also wanted to say, um, oh, mi- oh, at Midwest, Midwest huh. was fun. It was. We had a good the reveal of the title and the reading, the so forth preview reading and everything had a good audience. Yep. And I gorged myself on salmon. I okay. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. Um, I had. Someone come up to me, this was actually kind of amusing, and ask if at um, FC or maybe a later con, I would be willing to sit down for a panel and discuss, like, the themes and symbolism in Out of Position and the sequel. Huh, okay. And I was like, sure, if you set that up, I'll sit in on it. I was going to say, like, it would be, like, interesting to have you observe and, like, take notes as other people discuss it, and then you can tell people where they're wrong. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like I remember years and years ago um, hearing Anne McCaffrey talk about her dragon books and that somebody had written a graduate thesis called The Cinderella the Cinderella Complex in Anne McCaffrey's books. And she was like, there's no Cinderella Complex in my books. I wrote them. I should know. I didn't put anything like that in. But she's like, he wrote a whole paper on it. And if you look at it, there is kind of a Cinderella Complex in yeah. the books, a lot of them. A lot of them, in case you know the listeners <laughs> oh. can't. I don't know specifically, what but it's sort of the rags to riches thing where there's the, the yeah. poor woman who gets elevated up into success. Or, and Or what was the thing with Card where it's like, oh, there's no sexual tension here. This is uh, supposed to be representative of my relationship with my sister. Yeah. <laughs> That's just, yeah. Oh, Card, you source of wacky inspiration, you. But hey, you know, proud son of the Mormon church. We all love them out here in California. Oh, yes. There are nice Mormons. Shout out to yeah. Corey and uh, um, Didri. Okay. So, yeah, and no plenty of ex-Mormons who turned out okay, but I don't know if that's the same thing. That's true. Uh, so, that's I don't know what else happened at Midwest. We had uh, I signed a bunch of books. Um, everybody loved the cover to Isolation Play, and we're kind of waiting for Blotch to get back and to circulation to post it. And Blotch is still in their fortress of solitude. Yes. Uh, they'll also post a few of the interiors. And I believe that the catalog page for Order in the Hardcover will have sneak preview of a few of the interiors. So if even if you're not going to order the hardcover, you might just go to the catalog page and then, you know, if your finger accidentally slips on the pre-order button... 
you could go ahead and order the hardcover because that'd be cool. If you accidentally have thirty nine ninety five kicking around in your bank account, hey, they're going to be individually hand numbered by me. Uh, we're going to include a little book plate with some otherwise unpublished blotch art, some sort of roughs that they did for the book that we ended up not using. Um, You'll be able to tell yourself that Kyle's paws have touched your book. Yeah, pretty much people can, if they got them at a con, they can pretty much say that anyway. But these would be these will be sent out online. Oh. And um, the other cool thing is that the back cover of the soft cover has the blurb on it and the UPC code and all kinds of other stuff. Um, the back cover, the hard cover is going to be completely bare because the back cover blurb and the UPC stuff is all on the inside flaps. Oh, right. So you just get a very nice wraparound cover of blotch art, which right. otherwise you'd have to pay them like 10 bucks for a print of. And it will come with the whole book, too. <laughs> and it comes with the book. <laughs> oh, look, there's 160,000 words of story in here. And uh, and we will be putting out um, a, a hardcover of the original Out of Position, a reissue, just as soon as I get that you know, reformatted. And I think we're going to try to include the bonus story in the back of it. Uh, I don't think we'll get any additional art for it, but Blotch is busy, so... But just tell them, hey, you guys want to draw Brian again? They want to draw more football, actually. That's what they told me after this book. They said you should write more football scenes so I can draw more football games. So I have to write another book now. Maybe if I write Summerhill playing football, I can get them to do illustrations for my book. I don't know how I know how to throw a touchdown pass. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well let's get to some questions. And uh at the end of this, I think we're going to do a little personal message. Yes. Um, based off of the Dan Savage's It Gets Better campaign. So uh, me and Cam and Kit are all going to talk about our um, personal experiences and why it does get better and hopefully like provide some inspiration and hope to kids. So, hey there, Seethers. It's been a while since I've sent you guys a letter. This year I have decided to take the NaNoWriMo challenge. So far I have been lagging behind, but I think that part of the reason is I'm going through some very tough scenes to write. I know that if I ever finish this, that these scenes will probably be chopped up and turned into nothing more than a memory, but some of it may have something to do with the main storyline. I'm not quite sure yet. I know how this story is going and what some of the scenes are going to end up being, but I'm not quite sure on how to end it. I want the main character to learn some sort of big major lesson from this, but I'm not quite sure what it's going to be just yet. So, my question is, how do you figure out what the important lesson of the story is, and how do you figure out when you're at the end of a story? I know for some stories it's pretty easy, like some of Kyle's books, but what about when the end of the story is harder to see? I'm looking forward to Out of Position 2 and Summerhill. Both sound amazing, and I'm sure that someday signed copies of both of them will be worth millions. Thanks for the advice. Sai Cheetah. Well, if you can find signed copies of a book that are worth millions that aren't like the Bible, let me know. Shakespeare folio. Yeah. Um, maybe he means millions of lira. Yeah. <laughs> Two million a lira. <laughs> $48. So, how do you know what the important lesson of the story is? A lot of times you don't know until you get there. Well, see, I was going to say, you know because when you start out, you know that your character has a problem. You need to start out with at least some sort of idea of what your character needs, something that the character is doing wrong or that the character is missing, that is 
maybe not affecting them right now, but as soon as so usually you start with stories in equilibrium, a world in equilibrium, mm-hmm. and then something upsets that equilibrium You're and pushes the incidents. character out into the world. Yes. And the upset to that equilibrium is usually caused by whatever it is the character is missing. So you should you should know like in some of the examples you cited which I didn't read on the show because I didn't want to spoil the books for all of the listeners who might not have read them. Um, the character starts out with this problem. Things are stable, but they're not completely happy. And they're not completely happy because of some problem. And the ending of the book comes around when the character solves that problem. I- I'm persisting the urge to try to talk about Star Wars again. <laughs> Don't fight it. Uh, Your pain only uh, makes me stronger. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that everyone already knows how Star Wars goes at this point. Yeah, so I think knowing when you come to the end of the story is, is a matter of a feeling. And when you feel like the the ending is right. And I've had stories where, to be honest, I, I got sort of halfway into them and then never... I couldn't see where it was going. I couldn't see yeah. what the character was missing that I would have to resolve or how to resolve it. And I just kind of abandoned the story. Yeah, I've done that too. And a lot of times I'll know where the character is going, but I don't necessarily know what the takeaway point for the reader is going to be. Because that's not always the same thing. Right. Because sometimes the character doesn't learn their lesson, but the reader will learn what it should have been because of how they didn't succeed or what they did or didn't do. Right. Which Rem- is, Remains of the Day is a good example. Of yes, that. exactly. That's a good one. And if you haven't read The Remains of the Day, you really should. It's a yes. short book. Uh, it's not really a quick read, though, I don't think. No, and Probably you might find yourself people. wanting to read it over again. Yeah. It's by Kazuo Ishiguro. It was made into a Merchant Diary film. And, yeah. Kazuo Ishiguro is full of awesome. Um, so everyone says that whenever we recommend books, I've had a bunch of people say about, you know, Cloud Atlas and Palimpsest. So there we go. Our official number three recommendation now is The Remains of the Day. That's right. Go forth and read. Kazuo Ishiguro, if you want to give us kickbacks for pimping your book out, let us know. Or, or you know, just come into the call on to the podcast sometime. We'd like, we'd love Dude, to do that. If I would absolutely have Kazuo Ishiguro on this podcast. Yeah, well, that kind of goes without saying. We can talk secret in Japanese. He's British, you know. Yeah, I know, but he's also Japanese. All right. I'm sure he speaks Japanese. Yes. You could also talk secret Japanese with David Mitchell if he came on the podcast. That's true. He is also British. Yes. And speaks Japanese. Japanese. Or at least he lives in Japan, so we, we, we assume. Call in and correct us. But yeah, I mean, do you think that kind of touches on the points there? Yeah, I think that covers it. Why don't we go on? Okay. Greetings, podcasters. First off, I would like to report my NaNoWriMo progress. I put the finishing touches on my first novel in the beginning of November. Uh, It's available for free at alflor, that's A-L-F-L-O-R, dot sofurry dot com, and went straight into my next project. As of today, which is November 15th, the time I was writing it, I am approximately 50,000 words in. I set myself a three to 5,000 words per day goal, and thanks to a netbook and lots of time between classes, I have been superseding it every day. That's but, awesome. Yeah. By the time you get this letter, I will hopefully be over 100,000 words. Now, I don't plan to stop the novel once the month's over, of course. I'm estimating its eventual length to be around 150,000 words. Once I finish writing and peer editing, I'll try to get it published. 
I know that Foosball recommended putting your second novel away and never looking at it again, but there's no harm in trying. I've gotten so much positive feedback on my first novel that the least I can do is give it a shot. This brings me to my next point. I would like to speak out in defense of So Furry. You guys constantly speak of it as being nothing more than a place for dirty stories. Do, do we do that? Um, yeah. We might have mentioned Maybe. it that way once or twice. I think we're more, when we when we talk bad about it, it's more we're annoyed with the interface. Yeah. Yeah, I'll keep going. But I've discovered that it's much more than that. My stories have very little gif in them, and yet, over the past three months, have received over 40,000 views, over 200 followers, and one of them currently ranks seventh in popularity among stories posted in the last three months. I've only gotten one comment asking for more butt sex, please, while the rest of the comments were smart, constructive, and even touching. I've received several dozen emails from readers thanking me for my story and for inspiring them and getting them enough uh, through some very hard times in life. This, to me, proves that the readers of So Furry are much more than genitals with legs. There's, there's an image for Salvador Dali to paint for you. Or Cat Valenti. Yeah. <laughs> In short, listeners, don't be afraid to post your stories on So Furry, even if they don't have yet in them. There will always be those that appreciate them for the plot and quality of writing. Thanks for reading my lengthy letter, and happy podcasting, Al Floor. Hey, Al Floor. Yeah. Uh, actually, I got a letter from him yesterday, I think, and he said he's up to 90,000 words. Oh, so that's twice think, the NaNoWriMo goal. I think that means we got to the letter sooner than he thought we would. Yeah. But congrats on that. Um it's always great to get good feedback on your stories. I mean, I know yeah. we get lots of letters from people who say that they can't get any kind of feedback or any kind of following or anything like that. So um, I'm always glad when we hear of someone who has. Yeah. And I mean, when I had my stories, like back when Stowe Furry was Star, I used to always post my stories there and I got plenty of good comments from people. Uh, I used to get good responses on LiveJournal too. Uh, back before posting long things to LiveJournal just got sort of too unwieldy to do. Right. Yeah, I find in general, and I'm not sure why it is, but um, I've gotten some, I've gotten a couple good comments on So Furry, but um, by and large, they've just been really short, like, thanks, or this was great, or where can I find the rest of your books, um, stuff like that. But, you know, kudos to you. That's that's awesome. You're getting good comments and good feedback. and Yeah. Yeah, the thing with the interface, like, that's the thing I can't, really get it to do like it just anytime i try to post a story there it just like the interface it up the format the, yeah, yeah it's, it's just really weird it's and irritating but moving on yeah um and i will say i will say that as far as putting your second novel away don't put it away just because it's your second novel i mean or just because foosball told you to <laughs> right but you should one of the things that you need to work on is reading critically and so read other stuff and try to develop an objective standard and look back at your writing and see if it meets that standard yeah and you know don't throw it away just because it's your second novel you know at the pace you're writing maybe you'd have to write four novels before one got published but you know, you're writing so quickly that that would be like yeah. march so yeah, exactly. don't sweat it yeah um some people i, I was uh I was reading somebody's life journal post where she said she's written like 20 novels and she's had two published. Uh, Sometimes it's just, it's just practice. Uh, the main thing that you have to do is learn from the previous novel, what mistakes you've made and how to make the second and how to make the next one better. And if you keep doing that, you will get published eventually. 
Yeah. Might, for some people, diligence is key. Yeah, it, for some people, it might be the second novel. For some people, it might be the tenth. Um, you know, it's all a matter of how much you apply yourself and how much you learn. Uh, moving on. Dear K-Named Podcasters, how do you avoid excessive use of pronouns and character names when writing action that involves the same gender? I'm finding it very difficult to construct sentences and paragraphs that make sense without overloading on character names or being too thick with the he pronoun. If I avoid them, then I lose the flexibility of the sentence and threaten to become very monotonous and boring. But if I use them too much, it will be either unclear or very ugly to my eye. I find that I use the species too much just to get around this problem, but then each paragraph has at least one the species, so I can avoid using the character names more than once. Also, a few episodes ago, KM mentioned his hatred for phrases like the older man or the shorter man. I wanted to ask if I could get away with using the other man from Rashawn. Okay, so to briefly address your last point... Uh, my problem with things like using epithets like, oh, the older man or the shorter man is that they seem to be brought up solely to differentiate which character you're talking about, but like th the quality that you're using to differentiate them has nothing to do with why you're referring to them that way. That's where the problem comes in. It's like, you know, you'll be like in a conversation. It's like, well, his being shorter has nothing to do with what's going on or what they're talking about. And to use that as like the disambiguator, like it, unless like you have like a third party observing two people who are talking and they don't know who they are. And so they're sort of like mentally ascribing, you know, appearances. And that's one thing. But in the course of established characters where the reader knows who it is, that's when that gets weird. And I, I've done that on occasion. But um, um, so when you say the other man, you're actually, as you say, specifically using that quality to differentiate them. So I think that works a little better. Yeah. Uh, um, as I, for – oh, sorry. I was going to say I, I just wrote a scene with where I had to use a lot of different – pronouns and names and species and whatnot and it's tricky i mean it's something especially when you're writing gay erotica where there's not a lot of dialogue and it's all action and intimate action so it's you know he verbed his noun and yeah. you know you you've just got to be creative and yeah. play with the words till the flow works for you yeah also nobody's going to throw you in literature jail if you use a character's name more than once in the same paragraph sometimes it's necessary yeah and i've I've used a character's name more than once in the same sentence actually in some yeah. of these scenes i think i mean hey actually i just realized the story i finished writing today uh none of the characters like have names in the text mm. and that was part of one of the little literary tricks i do is that nobody's ever referred to by name so you just have species, the fox and the skunk uh -huh. and the raccoon. And right. So, but I mean, it's a first person perspective story, so it's a little easier. Right. Because, you know, the narrator and whoever he's dealing with. Well, Bill Pronzini wrote a whole series called The Nameless Detective, which is a first person mystery series. And he's written like 30 or 40 books and has never given the name of the main character. Yeah, I do a lot of nameless first person protagonist stories. Yeah, I find I do that too. Um, the one story that I've been working on for a little while, which I put on hold to finish out of position two, um, I'm going to try to pick up and finish this month, uh, this next month. But 
that's a first person story and I always forget what the name of the main character is because I never mention it. <laughs> so yeah. usually in those cases I just don't have names for the character because like yeah I don't know. I like them having a name. Like Stray. Like everyone else in that story has a name but not the main character. Like that's nobody funny. ever addresses him by name. Hmm. Okay. Well let's do our last letter. Okay. Dear Sheathers, Hello to my future self. Sorry, I know it may seem cocky to say this, but with your popularity, it may be months or years before this ends up being read. I don't think cocky is quite the right word. No. It might be cocky of us to yeah. say, but... Just think where we, may, where we may all be by then. Maybe we'll be in orbit of the newly built super space station Yamato. Maybe we'll have just landed on Mars. Or even, and I know it's a stretch, KM might have published Summerhill. Oh. Just think of this as a time capsule back to the stone ages of the 21st century. See, he's probably the only one who could get away with this, because anyone else we could just say, all right, fine, we don't need to read your letters anymore. <laughs> but if we didn't read Condor's letters, then, you know, we wouldn't, our yeah. shows would be like 20% shorter. <laughs> Okay, okay, I guess that's all a bit unfair. You guys have been getting some excellent questions, so it's no wonder that it can take some time to clear through the sub-backlog. Not if we do more lightning round. Yeah, true. Lightning round was great. That was a lot of fun. It does bring up a rather interesting question, though. How do you two keep track of plots when things get twisty? Have either of you tried writing time travel, or dream within dream, or parallel dimensions, or any of those favorite sci-fi cliches that make continuity a real frigid bitch to handle? If so, do you find yourself timelining it, or taking notes on what character A knows, since through time travel they've already lived through the story you're about to write? As an aficionado of the genre, I'd love any genre, any advice you can give on how to handle these complex plots. Thanks. Candrel, connoisseur of cross-dimensional cock. Wow, future Candrel has read Summerhill. I was going to say, he may <laughs> think he is, but he hasn't read Summerhill yet. Yeah, well, which, again, is just weirdly appropriate. Yeah. So you, this episode's all about things being confusing. Yes, and temporarily displaced and all out of order. Yes. Um, like our letters and Summerhill. <laughs> I've, I know I've written plots that i had to keep track of pendant was one of those where i had to remember um who knew what when Mm -hmm. and what was going on at every certain point because it was sort of like you know okay this person's here at this point while vol's doing this and then while vol's doing this this is happening and so he gets to here and i had to kind of write out a little timeline of everything that was going on but Paul, at the end of the last book, Misery was already buried in the ground, so there couldn't have been a miraculous last-minute blood transfusion that saved her life. <laughs> Sorry. Why do all our conversations come back to being shackled and having our ankles cut off? <laughs> the process was called hobbling. Now, um... Yeah, Summerhill has a lot of things like time travel and dimensional travel and all of that going on. But uh, for all that, it's not that complex a plot. No, it's not. Like, the path through the plot is actually very linear. Yeah, it is. Um, and, like, the understanding of what's going on is pretty linear. Uh, so that's sort of, like, I guess, anti to what his question is. Because it's, you know, complex things going on with a pretty you know solid plot like you don't you're not going to need to read Summerhill like five times to make sense of what's going on at least i hope you won't yeah i think i think one of the things that you want to watch out for is when you write those stories like 
the best example of a time travel plot, um, actually the best example of, I guess, some um, ways to do it and not to do it is the Back to the Future trilogy. Yeah, which is one, one of the most famous time travel stories right. in the last century or so. Um, back to the Future One was pretty straightforward. You you know traveling back in time, mm-hmm. and he's got knowledge of the future. Doc is sort of the wise old man who helps him because he has knowledge of how to deal with the future, and you know that's it. Back to the Future Two, which I happen to like quite a bit. I do too, actually. Apparently according to some stuff I read, was not all that popular because it does too much hopping around between time frames. So, right. if you recall... So you end up with, like, 1985A and 1985B Right, your you go forward streams. to 2015, yeah. you go back to 1985, but it's different. Uh, you go back to 1955 <laughs> to try to change 1985 back to the Normal original, 1985, yeah. which is actually 1985B, right, because 1985A was changed in the first one. right. And apparently, although I think most of the people listening to this podcast probably could follow that. I mean, as time yeah. travel stories go, pretty straightforward. But um, but uh, it, it apparently lost a good chunk of the mainstream audience. Really? That's kind of sad. Yeah. Because yeah. it is a good movie. It's a fun movie. I, I like it quite a bit. Yeah. But I, I love alternate timelines. And I'm... It kind of like, you know, for years and years I wanted to write a story about a magic school, and now I finally am. There you go. I think at some point I'm going to have to write an alternate, like many different alternate universe things, which kind of means I'm going to have to use an established universe. So maybe it'll be like Out of Position 5 is going to be a whole series of what-if stories, like, you know, what if Lee had slept with Brian one time in college, and what if You've got, like, Earth Prime. (laughs) Um, so maybe in a couple of years, I'll be asking my readers for some what if questions that I can write stories about. Anyway, I, I like alternate, alternate reality. So I, I really liked back to the future, but, um, another good, uh, another more recent example is inception. But again, that was kind of a complex world with a pretty straightforward plot. Yeah. And the parts of it that were ambiguous were parts that, um, people really enjoyed arguing about. Yeah. Which, is arguably kind of the point. Right. So, as far as how to keep track of them, I would just say keep notes on the side. Yeah. Um, what I did for some of my stories was write down a timeline. Yeah. So, I would say, you know, events happened at this time, and, you know, this each character had its own timeline along the calendar. So, you know, this day, Vol is down at the hot springs. Dareth is doing this stuff. Other people are doing these. Yeah. The vault comes down here, you know, this happens with this, so that I, so that I knew that, because mostly what the problem with Pendant was that there were like three or four little stories going on, and each of them was moving forward each day, and so I had to keep track of what was happening within the space of a day, so that when I said, hey, this happened two days ago, because it, it always seemed like it was more. Right. Uh, another movie to look at for keeping track of things as they're moving wonkily in time is Memento. Yeah. Where half the story is being told end to beginning, but the other half is being told beginning to end. Right. And then uh, they kind is, of meet at the end. Yeah. And which is another one of those movies that benefits from like multiple watchings, I think. Yeah. And it, it's I think it's a good movie. It's a great movie. I, mean, yeah. I, I like it a lot. Um it's got it's got one of those great punch endings. Yes, it does. And uh yeah, it's um 
it's uh, one of those things where it seems like it's just going to be gimmicky. It's like, oh, they're doing this weird thing, telling the story backwards. But because of the like, you know, the premise of the story, it makes sense to be told that way. Yeah, and it wouldn't have anywhere near the same impact if you told it front to end. Right, and on the DVDs, I believe you can view it front to end. Yeah, if you if you want to just ruin the whole experience, go right ahead. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yes, vote for a third party. Throw, Throw your vote, vote away. away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ah, well. So, uh, so I think that wraps up our letters. Yep. Um. All right. So this last segment, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna let Kit introduce it. Uh, he's our producer and he had asked that we, um, say a few words here. And so I'm going to let him sort of introduce it and then he's going to tell us who's going to start. So there's been a lot of, uh, talk lately about, uh, the coming out experience and actually a lot of the kids that are out there that, uh, aren't able to come out for various reasons or getting picked on at school or, um, emotionally or physically abused. So, um, had some, seen some great videos online, saw the Pixar one where, uh, they talked to a bunch of creators, animators, directors, producers at Pixar, all talking about their experiences and how it gets better. Here's a shock. Pixar put together a video with a great story. I know. Even when it's an eight-minute PSA. Yep. It was very touching. So um, It did. It almost got me choked up. The one um, the one guy who said was talking about coming home. and Oh, yeah. And I think it's sort of, you know, responding to his emotions, but he was he said you know, the best the best thing in his life is coming home and walking up the stairs to his apartment and knowing that his partner's there to give him a hug and love him and be in his life. And um, that was powerful. It was. It was. And, um, you know, I know, Kyle, that a lot of the books you write kind of, well, at least Waterways, has really touched on that topic. And you've gotten a lot of letters from kids and have they've talked about how it's really touched them and helped them. Um, and a couple of those letters have been really powerful and, and quite moving. Um, yeah, I don't I don't necessarily feel comfortable sharing them in public without the permission of the the letter writer and um but yeah, and I I was a little surprised because I didn't set out to write a book that was going to I didn't set out to say I want to write a book that makes gay teens feel better about themselves. But that appears to be what happened and I get lots of letters from kids who have said it gave them the courage to come out to their parents or it gave them the courage to hang on a little longer. Um, and out of position too, out of position comma also, um, I've had, I had one person say uh, to me just recently that out of position was responsible for him staying in college when he had, he had lost his financial aid and he thought he was going to be better off just dropping out and forgetting about the whole experience. But he said he took from that book um, the lesson that if you want something in life and you work for it, you can achieve it. And I think that relates to this whole, to the whole experience too, of uh, um, coming out and being yourself. Um, it's not an automatic process. No, it's not easy. And um, I think, I think that's just a really good example of the power of stories is uh, it, those are, those are stories that allow people to kind of reflect upon their own life and, and realize that, you know, I have the strength. I can move on. It will get better. Um, so we were kind of talking about our personal stories, and I don't. I think in general, none of us had 
a very traumatic experience coming out. Uh, I know me personally, you know, I could argue that this probably affected me in the sense that I was, for all intents and purposes, relatively asexual through most of junior high and high school. Um, I did date some girls, but I really wasn't into it. Uh, and it. And it could have been maybe I was suppressing a lot of feelings and I was just like, wasn't focused on it. It really wasn't until I was 21 or 22 that I started to like realize that, wow, I like these other guys. Although in this case, it was actually I like these other guys that have tails and ears and red foxy pelts and cute bums. But <laughs> I didn't come out to my parents telling them that part of it. <clears throat> so what I ended up doing was uh, I kind of got to the point where I was finally like, you know, I think my parents are pretty cool. I realized they probably you know, haven't really seen me dating lots of girls. They probably kind of suspect at this point. So I just didn't want to kind of beat around the bush anymore. So in traditional fashion, my family, we, uh, we went out to a restaurant. I, I took him out to dinner, uh, bought a bottle of wine. Um, we all drank that bottle of wine. I bought one more bottle of wine. Halfway through the second bottle of wine, I kind of broached the subject. Now that, you know, I figured my parents were a little bit loose and a little bit enjoying the dinner. We were chatting and I said, oh, and by the way, I'm gay. And um, they really didn't miss a beat. They were just like, oh, well, well, thank you for sharing. You know, I'm really glad that you feel that you can do this with us. We're very supportive. We love you. All the traditional stuff. Um, so, and, and from there, you know, my, my family's been supportive, my sisters. And then I told my sisters and one of them was like, yeah, so what? So I, I was blessed with having a family that was very supportive. Uh, even my extended family has been very supportive. Um, and I know that's... Uh, maybe it's a rare thing. I'd like to think it's not. I think there are people out there and I think it'll happen more and more. Um, so, I, but I do want to say, you know, it does get better. There are people out there that will understand. And, you know, there are people that are blessed with your families that will understand. And by you coming out and being yourself, it makes them and then their friends, they'll talk to their relatives, they'll talk to their, their friends. It just becomes a non-issue. And the more people that can come out, the better it will be for everybody. Do you want to go next or you want me to? I can go. All right. See, I like uh, Kit there. I was lucky enough to not have run into any major problems with my eventual coming out either. Um, it was the lead up to that that had me a bit worried. Uh, immediately after graduating from college, I moved to Japan. And the very first night I arrived in town uh, where I was going to be living and working... Before I had even been to work, uh, my roommate slash coworker brought me out to the local Japanese pub to meet the other folks that I would be working with. And the first thing that they say to me, and I'm not making this up, this is like the first thing they say to me is, it's like, oh, hey, like you're here. It's like, oh, it was great. Like before, you know, like you showed up, like we all told like your roommate that we heard from the home office that you were gay and he was all freaked out. That he was going to have to live with a gay guy. And they just sort of took for granted that, of course, I wouldn't be gay. Like this was just something that they made up to freak out. Um you know, the guy I was going to be rooming with. And that was actually just like, wow, I have been in town for about an hour and a half and already I feel very unwelcome. I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm not coming out at work, <laughs> at least not here. Uh, and I never did, at least while I was there. Also, the door to my bedroom when I moved in had a little sign that said no camping on it, which, like, if you're familiar with 
you know, like British slang. Yeah, that was, uh, so that was fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was not too long after I'd actually accepted the fact, uh, that I was gay and also like, I hadn't really dated anyone up to this point. Like I took a girl to my senior prom in high school, but I never like went on dates with people. I'd never had a girlfriend or boyfriend, um, had done some experimenting with guys in college, found out that I liked it better than experimenting with girls. Uh, so I was like, okay, yeah, we can put myself in, you know, this column. Uh, then I moved back from Japan back to the U S and ended up moving to the other side of the country from where I grew up and sort of got myself established here, not too far from the mountain bunker that I am currently recording in. And I've been out here for a couple of years after that. Uh, and, you know, I was financially independent, living on my own and several thousand miles away from my parents when uh, National Coming Out Day rolled around that year, which I believe is October 11th. That's right. It is because it's 1010. That should be easy to remember. Why did I forget that? <laughs> and there's a reason for that, too. Wow. I'm a bad gay. <laughs> I actually think you're quite a good gay. Oh, thank you. Um, the reason I didn't feel a need to come out to my family for several years at this point was because I was so removed from their daily lives that it didn't really affect them at that point. And also because, at least as far as my parents, and especially my father, were concerned, is I had it in my head, I'm like, they know, and they're just being nice and giving me the benefit of the doubt of having me tell them first, rather than just coming to me and asking me. Because I thought, you know, that's not really very polite to do to your kids, I guess. It's like, are you gay, by the way? I never see you bring home girls, that sort of thing. But no, so I uh, actually came out over the phone, because it was National Coming Out Day, and I couldn't just magically teleport to the other side of the country. Uh, and yeah, no, they had no idea. I caught them completely off guard. Uh, it turns out they were also on vacation at the time, so I didn't really get to have like a good long talk with them until afterwards. And at that point, they were like, okay, don't tell your brothers and your sister when you come home for Christmas. Let's just avoid any potential drama. Uh, you know, which I did out of you know respect for their wishes because, you know, hey, like, why risk it at a holiday, right? It's, that's how I felt and how they felt. Uh, but, you know, uh, eventually, you know, I came out to my, you know, my brothers and my sister, too. My sister's reaction was just sort of like, oh, okay. She's like, do you have a boyfriend? And I'm like, at the time, I didn't. I was like, no. Uh, it's just like, yeah, just like water off a duck's back. That went, but, you know, we're like similar in age, my sister and I. So, you know, we sort of come from like the young generation where we know like what's important and what isn't, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can, I count myself lucky that I live in a part of the country now where it's not a big deal. Uh, at my next job after that, you know, I was eventually out at work and that was never a problem either. Nobody, uh, you know, was making office jokes about it or anything or, you know, jokingly telling coworkers things they found out about me. Or made up about you. Or made up about me, Exactly. Even even when they knew I was a furry. But that's a whole other thing. Didn't somebody once say about you, Oh yeah, you're that gay furry over in that division. Uh-huh. They did. 
I found that out like many months after. I think that's awesome. Yes. So yes, you can be a, a business professional and have people in your office know you as the big gay furry. And it doesn't really get much better than that. Yeah. Well, I grew up quite a while ago. I'm going to plead the fifth on exactly how many years. But I grew up in a rural area. I took a school bus about half an hour, 40 minutes into a suburban high school. Uphill both and, ways. Um, <laughs> in the snow. Actually, it was. Because we were on the other side of a mountain, so we had to go uphill uh, going and then uphill coming back. Sneaky little fox. <laughs> yes. I purposely made my parents buy a house on the other side of the mountain from the public school just so I could make this joke <laughs> many years later. You're clever Kendrell, enough to pull it off. Kendrell, I had to write that down and keep track of it outside the <laughs> context of the podcast for the rest for all my life up to this point. And now I finally can throw away that piece of paper that tells me who knows what. So I grew up out in a rural area. I couldn't really walk down the street. I didn't have any local friends. I didn't really have much social life at all until I got a car in my senior year. And I didn't have any internet um, because, you know, Al Gore hadn't invented it yet. I was not even aware of what it meant to be gay when I was in high school. I was aware that I was different, but I thought that was mostly because I liked to read science fiction and fantasy and talk about that rather than go to football games and drink, which was what most of my high school did. Um, Years later, you like one of those things. (laughs) I I, I like going to football games. I still don't like going to high school football games, though. But um, this whole uh, It Gets Better campaign was kind of launched because of all of the teens that were not only being bullied and harassed, but also committing suicide. There were six, I think it's between six and nine in August and September, depending on, uh, there's definitely six gay teens who committed suicide. And I think there's three others who might've been, or people aren't sure they were being yeah. harassed because they were different. And I've heard either six or nine, but um, I don't, really pretend to understand why someone would do that, but I feel the closest I can come to thinking about it is uh, that it's a feeling of isolation, a feeling of being alone, that you're the only one in the world, that, that not that you're the only one, that there's nobody in the world who will listen to you, there's nobody in the world who will care, and I think that's why people think that that's their only solution, their only way out, that they don't see it, they don't see their life getting better, and they don't have anyone to talk to. Um, there is a there is a website and a phone number called the Trevor Project, which is specifically set up to help gay teens who are feeling suicidal. Um, I would encourage anyone to contact them. But I really just wanted to talk about my experiences because the way that I most relate to that is the isolation and trying to imagine. I, I was pretty good at keeping a low profile in high school. We didn't have much of a bullying problem. It was a suburb. It wasn't like an inner city high school. It wasn't a, you know, Hicksville high school. So we didn't really have, kids didn't get beat up. There weren't fights. There wasn't a whole lot of drama. And I was lucky in that regard. But, you know, if I'd been in a situation where every time I went to school, I would be terrified that somebody would um, pick on me or beat me up or just, you know, make my life hell, 
And I couldn't talk to my parents about why, and I couldn't talk to my siblings about why, and I didn't have any friends to talk to. Well, I can sort of see where where that would come in. And in high school, you don't know what's coming next in your life. And yeah. one of the themes of the whole It Gets Better campaign is how much we all would have missed out on if we'd not gone past high school. Um, I personally think that the kids growing up today are incredibly lucky because being gay is a known thing. It's an accepted thing. It's not something people are, by and large, afraid of. They're angry about it, but they understand it and they know what it is. And you've got gay characters on pretty much every network, every major network now, one show or another. Um, You've had movies with gay themes and gay central characters. You've got the internet where you can find just about any community to become a part of. And you've got furry literature. You've got, you've got furry literature, but you've got so many resources and so many people out there that you can reach out to and, um, and touch and have them become part of your life. That Mm. I think, I really would just say, you know, take advantage of that and take advantage of the time you're living in. And I think we're not far from a time when it will be maybe not normal. I think that's coming, but it's maybe a little further down the road. But at least it'll be no stranger than being a guy who reads science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. And, you know, it's... the one, the other thing I think is it's a shame not to have the support of your family, not to be able to talk to your parents about how much trouble you're having. And I did not come out to my family until I'd been uh, with Kit for about four years, I think, three or four years. Um, and at that point, uh, my family was all very supportive. Uh, I've not had any any problems with them at all, of course. I was in a much better position because I was living independently. I had a job. If any of my family did have a problem with me, I would have been able to just say, you know, go stuff it. But you'll get to that place too. And the um, I, I, I don't want to just echo what the guys at Pixar said, but um, I will say that probably 90% of the people that you've heard on this podcast have been gay. Um a good portion of our friends yeah. uh, are um, a lot of the people that I know, all of the, uh, again, I don't want to make this sound like, wow, gay people are more creative than straight people, but um, I know so many talented, creative gay people. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is we run into, and I have, you know, I have good friends who are straight too. Foosball would probably be upset if we didn't specifically call him out as being straight. Um, but I think gay or straight, you've got so much to offer the world still. Nobody's alone. I think that's the, that's the thing that I want to say. There were times in my life when I felt like I was. Oh yeah. I've been there. Um, especially in Japan. I couldn't, you know, even, even before I, I identified myself as gay, um, my family was never interested in the things I was interested in. The science fiction, fantasy, you know, later on pretending to be a 
fox person with a ears and a tail and um and you know we had less and less to talk about going home um when i moved out i didn't have that many friends who were into the same things either um at one stage of my life when i was living far away from where i grew up you know i i think i went months in between having any friends over to the apartment i was living in and i would just go home every day and i would be you know by myself but then i had the internet yeah i had friends online and that community was really supportive and that community really helped and i think that potential community is out there for for everyone these days and of course you have to be careful because there's predators online and you have to say that and all but there's so many great communities out there that you know you may feel that you're alone and that nobody's going to understand you and that nobody's going to help your life get better and that's completely not the case and you have so much more to give the world you know go find those people and uh i consider myself real lucky to have gotten to where i am today i would have been really mad if i'd missed out on those last uh 11 years with kit that's all <laughs> I was like, I don't I'm know if get, I can, I don't know if I can re- follow that up. I'm going to get real emotional if I keep talking like that. Oh, serious podcast is serious. Just, Kyle's face is all like a little red bit. and blushing now. It's adorable. Um, I'm, I'm a red fox. I think I'm going to get to watch them kiss each other after we stop rolling. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to cut this short. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. Um, so thank you both, uh, KM and Kyle. I, I, I appreciate you taking time out of the podcast to, uh, talk about a little heavier subject, but one that, uh, I think is worth talking about. Absolutely. And thank you for inspiring us to do that. Yep. Inspirational Wolf is inspirational. <laughs> um, so, uh, keep sending us emails. We we'll always appreciate it. Yep. Uh, email is unsheathedpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me as Kyle Gold on Twitter or on Live Journal, as I mentioned, and as Kyle on FA. I'm Cam Hirasaki on all three of those. Look forward to more updates on my projects as I start putting them up again. And uh, like the lives of high schoolers everywhere, we hope our podcast will continue to get better. And it will. And it will. We have some great stuff coming up for you at FC, but... Uh, Congrats to all the folks who attempted NaNoWriMo. We will possibly have a wrap-up next week for those who send us one. Yeah, by the time this is up, it'll be... It'll be over. It'll be deck. (laughs) Yep. So um, get those last few thousand words out. Keep writing.